Father, we just come and we ask, Lord, that you would do your work in this time. Lord, that you would speak loudly and clearly to our hearts. Lord, we trust you. We thank you. We look forward to what you're going to do. And we ask, God, that you would move in a powerful, powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you got your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 2. So grab your Bible, grab a pen, and let's turn to John chapter 2. And we're going to look at Jesus changing water into wine. Now, I want to put you at rest all the way from the very beginning. We're not talking about the alcohol content of the wine. We're not worried about that. That's a sermon for another day. But I want us to be able to look at this to see the miracle of what God is going to do here through Jesus Christ in Cana. It fits perfect with our theme verse, to aspire for Jesus to be preached in a place that he hasn't. You know that Cana is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's only mentioned in the New Testament here in John. And it's mentioned here for the first miracle of Christ and also for the second miracle of Christ. He's going to heal the official son in Capernaum, but he's going to do it from Cana. So in looking at this, we're seeing that this place where Jesus is showing up is a pioneer area, if you will. It's a new place for him to show up, for God to be doing his work in this way. Now, as we turn to John chapter 2, I want to tell you a story. There was a lady that went on a church trip to Israel, and she went on one of the Holy Land trips that many of us have been on. And she went to Cana with her group, and she thought, you know what, it'd be really great if I could buy a bottle of wine from Cana. And so she got the bottle of wine from Cana, and when she was there in Cana, she got the bottle of wine, she wrapped it up, she put it back in her luggage, and when it was in her luggage, she wrapped it just perfect, and then they went through security. And if you've been to Israel, Israel's security is really, really tight. So they ran it through the x-ray machine, and the guy said, ma'am, there's a bottle in your bag, and we're going to have to pull out your bag, and we're going to have to look and see what this is. She said, well, sir, I'm on a church trip. This is just water. That's all it is, just water in the bag. The whole church group is looking at her, and they run it through the x-ray machine, and he says, no, I'm going to have to open it up. So he opens it up, pulls out the bottle, and he says, ma'am, this is not water. This is wine. The whole church group's looking at her, and she says, praise the Lord. He did it again. <laughs> he changed water into wine. Well, what we're going to see here is Jesus Christ changing water into wine so that we can see the Lord do miracles in our lives so we can see and say, praise the Lord. He did it again. He's done something great. Look, if you will, in John chapter 2 with me, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. FYI, invite Jesus to your wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said, and I want you to underline this in your Bibles if you write in your Bible. His mother said to the servants, underline servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus Christ had an opportunity right there for his first miracle. He could have chose a lot of different people. He could have chose Mary. He was related to Mary. Mary was his mom, obviously. We know that. Just because you're related to somebody spiritual doesn't mean that God's going to use you. He could have chose the master of ceremonies. Just because he's the boss and the one in charge doesn't mean that that is one that God's going to use. Pastor, just because we're pastors doesn't mean that God's always going to use us. He might use somebody else. If you have to remind your church you're the pastor, you're probably not the pastor anymore. So if you think it's just because you're the boss, it's not going to work like that. He could have chose the disciples. They're going to be used greatly later. Isn't it hard to be in the locker room and not be the one used right at that moment? He could have chose the bride and the groom. They were the center of attention. But instead, he chose the servants. He said, I am going to choose for my very first miracle, the servants. They're going to be the ones 
Now we've heard a whole lot about servant leadership and we should be servant leaders. But as we're leaders, we should be strategic. Strategic. Strategic in our tasks, but servants in our hearts. Sometimes we can hide behind servant leadership because we wanna just do a lot of things that are easy instead of really being strategic to say, how can I take this forward? There's a difference in picking up a piece of trash in the hallway compared to vacuuming the entire hallway. We should have servant heartedness with strategic tasks that we're moving forward. That God wants to use us in a great way as leaders. He wants us to be strategic, yes, with our minds, strategic with our hands, with our steps, but servants in our hearts. So Jesus steps into Cana, a place in which is not mentioned in the Old Testament. And he steps forward for his first miracle. And he says, I want to choose somebody and who I am going to choose. It's not the disciples. It's not Mary. It's not the master of ceremonies. It's not the bride and the groom. I'm choosing the servants. Men and women, that's what we are. As we heard in the previous message, we are servants of Jesus Christ. No greater calling, no higher thing we could be called than to be servants. And that's who he chooses to use. Now, it's interesting in verse four, his mom turns, Mary turns and says, uh, uh, or excuse me, he said, she says in verse five to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. See, servants are to be folks that do whatever he tells us. Before that, Jesus is turned to by Mary and Mary says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. They're done with the wine. We've got to help them in this way. Why is that? Because that was a breach of hospitality. What could have happened in that time is they could have been in a whole lot of trouble. A breach of hospitality. Think about when you have people over at your house. In my house, if we think 10 people are coming over, we get food for 15. If we think just a few people are coming, we get more than enough food because we don't want to be in a place that we don't have enough. Same thing with this. The people could have brought their gifts back. They could have taken their gifts away from the bride and the groom. They could have had a breach of hospitality that would have gotten them in trouble. So Mary turns to Jesus and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. You've got to help. And I love what Jesus says. You ought to try this, pastors. Try this on your wife. See if this works. You're watching a big game. She comes up and says, honey, would you take out the garbage? And you just say this, woman, why do you involve me at this time? My time has not yet come. Now, wives, you just kind of bump him and say, Bubba, that's not going to work in the house. That's not going to happen. Now, Jesus is the only one that gets away with calling anybody woman, okay? That's the way it's going to work. Pastor, you can't get away with it. It's not going to work. But in here, even in the Greek, it's not really as harsh as it sounds. It's more of a ma'am type of thing. Ma'am, my time has not yet come. Why do you involve me at this time? So she turns to the servants. And look at what the servants do if you'll look in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So we've got about 180 gallons potential with this. They're used for ceremonial washing and he's going to make a change. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Underline this in your Bible if you write it or write it in your notes. So they filled them to the brim. They filled them to the brim. When God asks you to do something, when Jesus asks you to do something, do you do 51% or do you fill it to the brim? When God says, I want you to go for it, I want you to give, do you give? I mean, give and really give. When God says, I want you to disciple somebody, when God says, I want you to be prepared when you get into the pulpit, are you really prepared? Are you really able to disciple? Have you filled it to the brim? Many times, 
in ministers' lives, we can fill it to 75% and it'll be just good enough. We'll rest upon our personality and our experience when we get into the pulpit. We'll know that we're just good enough that we can take the passage and we can make it and we can throw it out there and it'll be just enough to get us by. Might even be good enough to wow, depending on the depth of your personality or your experience or the giftedness that you have. But instead to be able to come as these servants did and to fill it to the brim. Now that's not a pressure moment. That's not a guilt moment. That's a freeing you to be exactly who God wants you to be. That he wants us to fill it to the brim. So here's a place of great need. See if this sounds like our world. A place of great need. They're without wine, without the blood of Christ, without the gladness of heart. And we have that. We're able to, to give them the gospel, to give them the truth of Christ. And in giving them that, we don't want to just fill it halfway. We want to fill it to the brim. And you think about these servants when they get to this point. What do they feel like at this point when they're about to fill it to the brim? They've already been preparing for the wedding probably all day. They've been serving at the wedding. They were the ones that filled the jars in the beginning. And now they're going to have to refill the jars that they didn't, that they thought were done. That was finished. They already did that part. How do you feel when you have to redo something? How do you feel when you recast vision? I find for me, what I do is I'm like, I told you people what we're doing. Let's do it. Let's go for it. I bet there was a feeling within the servants that's a feeling that we have within us as servants as well. Tired. Tired. Are there any of you in here that are just flat out tired? I'm not talking about unhealthy, tired, about to burn out. Not, that's, that's a place, and yes, we need to deal with that. I'm telling you, for me, and maybe I'm too honest, in ministry, I'm tired a lot. I got a three-year-old and a nine-year-old. I get home, and I got a lot of dad duties. I don't get much piddle time to just hang out and do nothing. I'm tired. Not dangerous tired, just tired. I wake up at two o'clock in the morning thinking about the things of the church, and sometimes I don't go back to sleep till about three. It's the curse of leadership. It's leading it's having that weight. I want sometimes as pastor and you do as well, I want somebody else to feel the weight of the entire church, but it's me that feels it. It's you that feels it. It's your wife that feels it because they get the ooze out of our life. And we feel oftentimes just like these servants, tired. Some of you have been doing ministry for a long time and you might just have said, you know what? I'm just tired. I've been doing this 30, 40 years. Some of you wives might be incredibly tired. You know, I figured out one time that my wife has heard me speak over a thousand times. And I'm only 40, so some of you are like, man, if, you have, if your wife's heard you a thousand times, I've heard my husband 5,000 times. Some of you are like, I've heard him 5,000 times and it's only six messages. That's a problem. <laughs> but we're tired. But in the fact of us being tired, what God says in the midst of tired, don't miss it. I want to be your resource. I want to be the one that fills the jugs. I want to be the one that fills to the brim through you, just as we heard in Colossians, that to this end I labor and struggle with all of his energy that works so powerfully within me. And what happens is when you are walking as a servant, there's going to be times that you feel tired. I've been the pastor at Houston's First Baptist for seven years now. 
I can remember the first couple years I'd come from the second floor down from my office. I'd walk down these stairs and I'd look down this long hallway. It felt like 50 miles. And I'd look down and I'd think that's where we need to be, but this is where we are. But I'd say to myself, but today I took a step. Do you know that two steps forward and one step back is a step forward? Two steps forward and one step back is a step forward. And so tired, I'd say, let's just take another step. Let God do his work. When I'd wake up in the morning and the first verse of my mind was Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's a problem. Whenever I wake up and even youths grow tired and weary, I've got to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, you do your work. So these servants come through, they are tired and alone, but they are filling it to the brim. And something happens in this place where they begin to see in this, they're going to be a part of God's work where they're going to be a part of the first miracle. So their tiredness has to be laid down at the call of Jesus. Here's what happens when you walk faithfully with God. God will restore, and as you stay plugged in and charged up, as we previously heard, that God will restore and that tiredness can actually be turned into energy for you to continue to be a servant, to let God do His work. And then your heart for God expands. Your heart for God expands. Now, these servants are going to deliver an amazing amount of change. That's what they're going to deliver. They're going to take the cup out, and they're going to begin walking with the change. And when we are servants and we walk with the change, God does his work in us. God does his work in us. Remember one night I was trying to be a good husband. Hopefully I try to be that every night, but I decided this night, you know what? I'm going to help wash the clothes. I'm not real good at helping wash the clothes. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help wash the clothes. So my wife had gone on to bed and so I got a load of laundry and I threw it into the washing machine. I turned it on and washed the clothes. And man, I was thinking, I am awesome. This is great. Those other deadbeat husbands, they don't do this. Other people, you know, they do all these bad things. Not me. I'm washing clothes. So I threw it in, then I put it in the dryer, threw in another load, put it in the dryer, threw in another load. Put it, I'm on my third load. I'm like, this is awesome. I've got the trinity of laundry going on right here with my third load. This is amazing. In the third load, I didn't realize that I had throw, throw, thrown in my wife's favorite sweater. The favorite sweater that said dry clean only on the tag. Now, if dry clean only is so important, why is it on the back of the tag? That's all I want to know. It should be on the front of the tag. So I throw in the dry clean only sweater into the washing machine with hot water. I wash it. I pull it out with all my pride, and I'm going to throw it into the next, into the dryer. As I walk, uh, I pull it out, I look at her favorite sweater, and I brought it here to show you today. (laughs) Now, my wife's small, but she didn't... A chihuahua, okay? This isn't our dog sweater. And some of you are like, that can't be real. If this was like Baby Gap, it'd have to be Baby Gap for monkeys, okay, is what it'd have to be. So I have this little sweater, so now I got this dilemma. She's in bed, and I'm thinking, what should I do? Maybe I should take the spiritual route. I should be like, you know what? We have so much. I decided we should give them things away. And, you know, we just began with your clothes. So we just gave some things away to the poor. Maybe I could do that. Maybe I could just hang it up in the, in the closet, and she wouldn't notice. You know, I say, no, all the pastor's wives are showing their belly button this year at the convention. It's okay. Just wear it. It's no problem. It's just a little half shirt. No big deal. It's a hip thing to do. Maybe that could be the deal. Maybe I could just throw it away and say, what red sweater? You know, what could it be? You know, so I decided to take the honest route and I told her about it and praise the Lord. She laughed and thought it was funny. I was grateful for a Proverbs 31 woman at that moment. I was like, yeah, isn't that great? That's so funny. But I shrunk the sweater. 
Let me tell you what will happen if you do not walk as a servant of Christ, allowing God to fill the brim. Your heart for God will shrink. It'll shrink. Because it'll be placed into positions that it shouldn't be in. And instead of the servant's heart for God shrinking, instead of the servant's hearts shrinking and going down, instead it becomes great. New American Standard, Psalm 119, verse 32, it says, I shall run the way of your commands, for you will enlarge my heart. When you fill it to the brim, your heart for God grows. And when your heart for God grows, you begin to walk in faithfulness. Look at what happens in these next verses of Scripture in verse 8. It says in verse 7 that they filled it to the brim. And then it says, now he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. Draw some of what out? Draw some water out. And master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had, notice, drawn the water knew. And everyone then called the bridegroom aside. And we'll get to the next verses in just a second. The servants take the water. And as they take the water out, they are going to walk with water to the master of ceremonies. They could get with the water to the master of ceremonies. He could slap them across the face and say, you insult me. I run out of wine and you bring me water for foot washing and hand washing. I run out of wine and you're bringing me water as a servant away with you. They walk in faithfulness with the water for it to turn into wine. Servants deliver change. Servants deliver change. God makes the change. Servants deliver change. Do you realize that we need change in all of our churches, mine included? We need great change. In the last seven years that I've been the pastor at Houston's First Baptist, we were started in 1841. There was only five years in Texas history that there wasn't a Houston's First Baptist. 1836, we gained independence from Mexico. 1841, our church was started. In that time, obviously, we're 170 years old. It's an old church. We went four and a half years without a pastor after the patriarch, amazing man, great friend, John Bassanio left. So I come in after four and a half years. You know, my last job on a church staff was a youth intern. That was my last job. This is my first pastorate. Did Breakaway Ministries as a college minister at Texas A&M, but this is my first pastor. Stepped into the deep end of the pool, jumped in, and I was ready for some change, and I didn't know what to change. So we just began looking and assessing and looking things around. So I want to give you three things on change as we look at these servants of change. Because here's the deal, we all need change. Number one that we can learn from these servants about change is face the facts. Face the facts. The servants face the facts. We're out of wine we need something and we don't have it. Some of us need to face the fact. Some of our ministries stink. And we just got to look at them and say, our children's ministry stinks. Our worship is not worship. Our missions is not missions. Facing the facts that we don't want to face. We brought in a consultant that worked with our church for some different things. We had a whole staff meeting. This was last week. And he said, one of the things y'all need to really improve on is the pastor's invitation. That's me. And he's right. 
I need to do a better job with how I invite because I found that I prepared the whole message and then I just tag on the invitation. I need to prepare the invitation as if I'm preparing it just like the message. And what did I do? I just clicked into everything I've heard my whole life. As God speaks, you come to it. I mean, I just did autopilot was invitation. So I'm critiquing myself about things that I need to face the facts on. When I got there, we did, you know, we've changed a whole lot of things. One of the things that I figured out is our library, there was nobody ever in it. So I said, show me how many books we checked out for the year and how much the library cost us. Here's what we were doing. We were paying every person that checked out a book 20 bucks. It cost us $20 for somebody to check out a book. I said to the deacons, how about if we just start buying everybody a book? How about that? We'll make out cheaper if we do that. At the other end of the hall, we got a bookstore that's going broke. So we combined the two things. We had to face the facts. We moved a table in the library that was dedicated to somebody. Why do we dedicate furniture to dead people? The next pastor can never move that table, right? You might as well be upending Uncle Albert, taking him out of the graveyard, moving him down the street. We moved a table and a lady started crying. I thought, well, you're either going to cry a lot or I'm going to cry a lot, but I'm not crying a lot, okay? So we changed, we put those things together. It's just an, an example of facing the facts. We combined our bookstore where we got books to buy and books to borrow, our library and bookstore together. Now both of them are completely in the black. I mean, it's great glory day. People are checking out books and buying books like crazy. It's awesome. We had to face the facts. What facts do you need to face? Change doesn't happen unless you face the facts. Number two in change is this. To unlock the future, you have to unlock the past. To unlock the future, you have to unlock the past. Maybe some of you are in some old churches just like mine. Here's how you unlock the future. You unlock the past. That's what I mean by it. And I hope that some of you young guys that are wanting to pastor, I hope some of you will take on old churches like I do, did. Just, it's great. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. It's a blessing. They've got so much past history. I quoted our first pastor, this passionate evangelist heart. I quoted him from 1842. And I said, that's exactly what we're going to do. But here's how we're going to do it. It's a little bit different. We moved from downtown out into the suburbs. Now we're moving and starting a downtown church. We're moving back. So I said to all the folks at 30 years ago, they moved from downtown to the suburbs. I said, remember when you had the vision and you had the faith and all of them said, yeah, wasn't that great? Yes. That's the same thing we're going to do. We're just going back into downtown. And they went, yeah. And what I thought was going to be a whole bunch of young singles going back downtown with us One of the people that said, I'm going with you. We're going back down there. She's 75. She said, I want a vision. I want to go for it. To unlock the future, just to unlock the past. Know your history. Know your history and let it be. And number three, have transition plans, not just change plans. Have transition plans, not just change plans. We'll see in just a moment, there's going to be a walk. A lot of folks got change plans, but you're going to get killed you got to have change plans, or excuse me, transition plans as well. How are you going to get from point A to point B? And so with these servants, they fill it to the brim. They face the facts. What's the facts? And as they face the facts, they say, you know what? Let's look, and, and we can say in our churches, let's look in the past and unlock the future by unlocking the past, and let's have transition plans. Here was their transition plan. They drew out the water, and they began to walk. They began to walk. When did the water change to wine? The water, in my estimation, changed to wine in the walk. 
in the walk is when it changed to wine. Here's what I do. Here's how I take it in my life. Pastor, do you ever on a Saturday night look at your outline and think this message is no good? Look at your outline and you're like, this, any, this made great sense on Thursday. It doesn't make a lot of sense on Saturday anymore. Okay, so I'm reworking. I'm trying to put this whole thing together. Here's what happens with me. I, my wife will say, how's the message? And this is what I say. I say, it's water. It's water. I need wine, Lord. I need more. I need this. I need that. I need more of this. And I'm holding. I got water, God. How can you send me there with water? I got to write a book this year called Finding God's Will. And I would push my computer away from me. It just came out in January. I'd push my computer away from me and pray and say, God, is it your will for me to write a book on finding God's will? Now that's a weird deal, isn't it? That'll put you in the cuckoo house right there. And I'd push it away. And as I'd write, I'd just say, Lord, it's such water. And if I get to the end and it's water, I'm going to be embarrassed. It's not going to work. It's not going to be what's needed. I need, Lord, for you to give me what I need. And here's what I found. In the journey of faith, Jesus does miracles. And when he does miracles, he changes water to wine. He does miracles when we look at a message and we say, Lord, I, this is what you called me to say. This is what you want me to do. Lord, I'm just going to walk. I'm just going to walk with you. And I'm going to step out and I'm going to declare the gospel. And I'm going to declare the truth. And I'm going to preach your word. And as I do that, at the end of it, if you ever preached in the end of it, you thought that's going to be a sorry message. And at the end of it, God showed up and you went, wow, it's wine. My wife, sometimes on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning after uh, the first service, she'll just lean over to me and say, wine wine. I don't know if she just needs a drink. It's been a hard morning or what. (laughs) She and I, that's saying, God did something I can't. Church planter, you'll never have enough money. It'll always feel like water. You walk with God. Missionary, it will always feel like water. You walk with God. Pastor, the sermon should always feel like you don't have enough. Walk with God. And Jesus Christ will change water into wine and you'll look back and go, wow, look at what God's done. And he's done something I could not have done. He's brought the change. He's brought the change. Now, what change does he bring as we close? Verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine and the guests have had when they've had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now this is the first of his miraculous signs isn't that cool his first miraculous sign Jesus performed at Cana where Cana that's a pioneer area in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him God's provisions are better than man's Filling up those jars provided about 2,500 glasses of wine. Abundant excess. Don't you find when God does something, he always does it to the nth degree? He does it to the nth degree. See, finding God's will, and and God's will never lacks God's provision. So God does things you can't even imagine. With the book that I wrote, I can't imagine it, but God's done this, that, that the Oakland A's are using it in their baseball chapel. The Houston Astros got one for every coach and every player. 
things I could not even fathom, things that God's doing through you and that wants to do through me. God can do great things. He abundantly changes things. The town drunk in one little town got saved and changed his life. And somebody came up to him and said, you don't believe the nonsense of Jesus changing water into wine, do you? He said, I sure do, because in my house, he changed whiskey into furniture. God can make changes. God can do great things. The Lord wants to. And so I tell you this, live a life that serves. When God gives you something to do, you fill it to the brim and you walk it out with ministry heart and you let Jesus change that water into wine, making it a miracle. And you know what'll happen? Your heart won't shrink for God. It'll grow. It will grow. Not man's efforts, but God's miracles. I close with this illustration. I have a three-year-old girl. Her name's Valerie, and she is the cutest three-year-old on the planet. Sweet as can be. My grandfather used to do this to me, and so I started doing it to my kids. He'd have a piece of candy in one hand, and then he'd put it behind his back, and he'd put it out, and I'd have to pick which one, and I'd do, oh, no, it's not that one. Then, oh, yeah, it's this one. So I started doing that with my kids, and they would pick out which one it's going to be. So my daughter, three-year-olds, kind of got into this. So she decided she would come up to me, and she would hold a small little football that we had in her hand. And so she came up, and it'd be as if, if this was the football, if this piece of paper. So she walks up to me, and she goes like this. And I look at her, I'm like, okay, do I need to talk to the school counselor about this? I mean, is this a problem in development? I mean, what's going on here? So I say, uh, this hand. No, no. She does it again. Then she does it behind her back, and then she brings it out. So finally, I pick this one, and I go, yeah, yeah, yay, we all celebrate. Pastor, can I tell you this? Man's effort, God's miracle. Which one you want? Which one do you want? It's painfully obvious what we all need. Let's be men and women of God that say, yes, Lord. We'll fill it to the brim. We'll serve you with all we have. And we'll realize that when we're doing it right, it should feel like water. Lord, we need you. My gifts can't make it into wine. My experience can't make it into wine. All the money in Fort Knox can't make it into wine. You have got to do it. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray, Jesus, in your powerful, powerful name that you would take the ministry endeavors that we're about. And Lord, as we look at them, they feel like water. And you, God, would make changes in our churches. Let us face the facts. Let us see the history of some of our great longevity churches. Let us walk faithfully. Servants, tired, yes, at times. With a cup of water, not knowing how it's all going to turn out. Trusting, though, that you can enlarge our hearts and turn water into wine. In the power of Jesus' name, think right now in your mind, which do you want? God's miracles or man's efforts? It's no switcheroo. 
take just a moment and say, Lord, I commit to you. I want God's miracles in my church. I want God's miracles in my life. Speak that to him. And then hang on for the ride. In Jesus' name, amen.